Open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 25. If you're visiting Christ Church, my name's Mark, and I'm one of the ministers here. And we have been in this series uh, for a year and a half now, almost two full years of looking at the teachings of Jesus. And I want to remind you to why we're doing this. It, we're trying to understand what Jesus taught about being a disciple. We're trying to uh, understand what he's teaching us about God, what he's teaching us about ourselves, and about the world we live in. How do we engage that? Uh, how do we live for our salvation as well as live for other salvation? And we've been studying that, and we're in the 73rd week of this. The past few weeks, if you've been traveling during the summer, we have been in Matthew chapter 24 and now in chapter 25, which is a very prophetic passage of Jesus' teaching, where he's talking about what would happen to the Jewish people after he was gone and what would happen in his return. And we've been studying, and there have been some questions asked through emails, and, and people are, have, have been curious about fleshing this out a little bit further, because we're all intrigued about what Jesus said about the last days and what's going to come with that. And we mentioned a few weeks ago, as we started Matthew chapter 24, that we would hold a forum. It's going to be on August 11th, that's two weeks from today, at 6 o'clock here in the worship center. Uh, I've got some of the uh, Ozark Christian College faculty members that are going to be here that uh, are going to answer some of the questions that you've been raising. And we want you to come. We want to encourage you to come be a part of that. It's not going to be a lecture. It's going to be a Q&A from us to these professors who study these passages of Scripture. What is Jesus doing in the book of Revelation that relates to what he told us uh, in the Gospels? How do we live in light of that? What are some of the misunderstandings of the end times that are popular, and, and what are the, some of the things we need to hold on to? So we really encourage you, two weeks from tonight, 6 o'clock uh, in this room, we encourage you to come with your questions, come with your notepads, bring your Bibles, and let's just see what God does with that uh, night and that opportunity. Uh, we have been listening to Jesus teach about some of the signs and some of the warnings about getting ready for the end times. He said there would be a delay, and there has been. But he also said he's coming back, and that's what our hope is based on. He's been using these parables. In fact, if you take uh, chapter 24 and 25 of Matthew, he uses five distinct parables that have similar endings, but all are unique to one another. They're very parallel, but they're all making a greater point. He told us the parable of the fig trees and uh, the signs that they give as warning. The parable of the homeowner emphasized readiness. The parable of the servant waiting on their master uh, emphasizes laboring. At the beginning of chapter 25, which we won't be covering in this series, but it's very similar to the other parables we have covered, is the parable of the bridesmaids making themselves ready and taking their responsibility. And Jesus ends those, uh, these examples with a fifth parable, which we'll talk about uh, this morning. Yet all of these parables tell us to be watchful, be ready, and to labor. In other words, to know Jesus is returning, to live our lives for his return, and to work until he returns. Shake your head if that makes sense to you. And this is what he's doing. And in this 25th chapter, he brings us all together with this beautiful parable called the parable of the talents that most people are aware of, even if they're unchurched and don't read the Bible regularly. They've heard the reference to this. Let's, let's look at what the parable teaches. I'd like to begin, however, with Thomas Edison had this fantastic quote about what we're talking about today. He says, opportunity is missed by most people because it's dressed in overalls and looks like work. It's a, there's a truth here that Jesus is warning us. While we wait for him, we need to make ourselves ready, we need to be watchful, and we need to labor. We need to work. There's things he's given us to do, and this parable speaks to it. Let's begin in verse 14. 
Again, now stop there. He's relating it back to all the things previously said about these days. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, to another one talent, each according to his ability, and then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents, and see, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man who had the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I had not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the banker so that when I return, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from them and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This isn't a happy parable, is it? It ends with darkness. The antithesis of Jesus being the light of the world. Send him out of my presence into a place of pain and and turmoil. And I think that this parable is difficult for Americans to interpret because when we hear the word talents, we instantly think of skill, innate ability. We think of the ability to draw or paint or write music or use words well or be athletic or be able to make money and have a savvy business mind. Yet that word talent is not what's used here by Jesus. A talent is a measurement of something valuable. Let's define it as an opportunity and change our worldview on it. If you, if, you're, if you believe Jesus is saying that God gave some people five abilities and some two abilities and one ability, then I think we're, we're extending that beyond what it should be. What Jesus is saying here is that God has given us all opportunities, valuable things to be used for his kingdom. You know, it's in the parable, the master is going away on a lengthy journey and he's entrusting his things opportunities to those that call themselves his servants. And it's a, it's a pretty simple story. Two of the three find themselves faithful. They love their master, they honor their master, and they live in such a way that the opportunities that they're given, they make useful. And the usefulness of what they do with the opportunities doubles it. But the one chooses to be faithless He fears his master. He doesn't love his master. And so when opportunities come to build his master's kingdom, he chooses to say no to them. In fact, he refuses. And the point of the parable is that God has given us opportunities. God will lay out in front of each one of us. Some will have many opportunities and some will have a few, but everyone will have some. And the truth is that nobody is incapable of of using their opportunities that God provides. 
So there's three things we learn from this parable. Then we're going to move off the parable to the application. There's three things we learn. In Jesus' parable, the master is the one who grants the opportunities, that being God. Secondly, our dependability is based on our love and affection for our master. And thirdly, our accountability is undeniable. So let's remind ourselves what we just learned. God has given us opportunities. If we are faithful, we will take those opportunities and invest them. And thirdly, there will be an accounting for everybody. For those who take the opportunities, there will be reward. For those who refuse the opportunities and bury them, there will be punishment. Like I said, it's not a happy, clappy thing, is it? In the parable, Jesus even uses the word worthless servant. A servant who doesn't serve his master and take care of the responsibilities he's given is worthless. Daniel Webster once said, The most important thought I ever had was of my individual responsibility to God. I wish... I had that thought more often. Now, I want to be careful because if you're sitting where I think many of you might be right now, you're thinking, oh, I'm not doing enough. This isn't about productivity. It's about faithful responses. It's about saying, my master has asked me to do this. I want to do this for him. He's given me an opportunity, and the opportunity's blessed my life. I want it to be a blessing to other people's lives. It's not about how little can I do to not get in trouble. Which, unfortunately, if you read and listen to preaching on the parable of the talents, it's often stripped of its joy, and it's turned into an obligation. And I don't believe it should be an obligation. I was flying back uh, on an airplane, duh. I was on a flight home. And I was catching up on some reading, and George Barna said that the two most common asked questions of ministers is, how can I know God's will for my life, and how can I find happiness and fulfillment? I don't know if it's the top two. Maybe I know it's in the top five. Most common question in my ministry lifetime has been, how do I know I'm going to go to heaven? Yet, I hear these questions too. How do I know God's will for my life and how do I find ultimate fulfillment? I'm going to answer those two questions with this parable. Invest in the opportunities that God gives you and you will find both. You see, the truth of it is God's will is discovered by trusting his word and his son. And let's just remember this and enjoy it. If you want to know what the will of God is, it's found in the word of God, which we call scripture. And that scripture reveals the Son of God, which is our hope. So every one of us can know the will of God in our life. Now, some people come and say, I want to know the specific will. Should I take this job or not take this job? Should I marry this person or not marry this person? You know, should I go to this college or this college? And the specificity of God's will is unique. But study the word of God. Can you bring God glory in your lifetime? You're within the will of God. If what you can do will show the glory of God, you're in the will of God. If you can't do what you're doing, you need to get out of what you're doing. Because the reason we're here is not to be happy. The reason we're here is to bring glory. And when we bring glory, we'll find joy, not happiness. So the will of God is found in the Word of God because the Word of God reveals the Son of God. So that's the first answer. The second answer is how do we find fulfillment? By experiencing faithful obedience. Uh, I think it was, it's been quoted to Mother Teresa, I, I believe. 
you're never going to know God is all you need until God's all you have. And when that comes true, then you'll understand the fulfillment the world offers is temporary at best and unsatisfying all the time. And only God is satisfying. So how do you know the will of God and how do you find fulfillment? You invest in his kingdom and his opportunities. And that's difficult for us. Because we not only want to build God's kingdom, but we want to build our own too. Because many of us struggle wondering if God is going to help us build ours. And the truth is he's not. Because he wants you in his completely, not partially. So what I'd like to do is use scripture this morning to show you what are some of the simple teachings of the will of God and the word of God so that you and I can live fulfilled lives and understand the hope that we have in Jesus. First point I want to make this morning is this. We have to choose to trust his desires for us. The first thing we do as we enter into this relationship with our master is we have to choose to trust his desires for us. Let me repose it in a very simple question I ask myself all the time when I'm having this internal debate about whether or not I want to do what God tells me to do. Does God know how to live this life better than I do? If the answer that you come in your heart is yes, then you're choosing to trust his desire for you. Psalm 139, the psalmist writes, I thought it was a hymn first, and then I found out it was biblical. Here we go. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. That 139th Psalm is beautiful because it's a choice to trust God that he knows what's best. In fact, the psalmist intimates that God knows more about us than we do. He knows about your passions and desires. When God says, I know what you're thinking, he's right. When God says, Mark, I know you want to do this, he's right. And the psalmist cries out and says, God, you know more about me than I know about myself. I need you to direct me. I need you to guide me. I need you when you tell me that something's wrong and the world says it's right. I need to trust that it's wrong. When the world says now that it's, it's wrong or pig-headed or obstinate for you to say that someone living this way is not right before God, how dare you do that? I do it because the word of God says so. It's not my opinion. You see, I'm choosing to trust that God knows what's right, God knows what's good, and God knows what's best for all of us, even when many people don't want to agree. Search me. Know my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me, and then lead me in an everlasting way. You know, I've played with terms with you guys over the past couple weeks. I played with this concept of we don't accept Jesus, he accepts us. And the way Jesus accepts us is when we surrender to him. And surrender starts with a choice. Psalm 1830. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. Can you trust that? Can you trust it? Because it is the question of the morning. Because servants who don't trust the goodness of their master will bury their opportunities and produce nothing of value. Those who trust the goodness of their master will invest it in his kingdom and will expand his kingdom like he's asked us to. Proverbs chapter 3, if you want to turn in your Bibles or apps to that, I'd encourage you to do so. I believe this is the Old Testament parallel in, in practical application to the parable of the talents. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 10. 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Trust. Choose to trust. In fact, if you take these six verses, verses 5 through 10 of Proverbs 3, you're going to find some conditional issues with God. If I do this, he will do this. If I trust him, he will do this. If I choose him, he will do this. If I don't, then these blessings and promises aren't there. Now, don't jump ahead and say, okay, if I give God more, do I get more back? No, you become more. You don't get more. The reason we obey the Lord is not to receive more. We obey the Lord because we've already received more than we're worth, more than we deserve. Look at these verses with me. If we trust... If we acknowledge, if we are humble, if we respect his knowledge and wisdom, if we honor God with our wealth, I want to pause there for a moment. Most of us in America will define wealth as money, riches. I don't know that you should limit it to that. I think biblically you can define wealth as relationships. Amen, if you agree to that. If you have good friends who love you and won't betray you, If your family is healthy and God-honoring and living together in unity, you are wealthy, right? Some of us are loaded with relationships that God has put in our path, opportunities and friendships. Some of you go every day to work and you are surrounded by people who don't know the love of Jesus Christ. You are wealthy in opportunity. Some of us are able to make finances and we live beyond the margins and we have extra to share your wealthy. Some of you are talented and gifted in writing and singing and writing music and doing art, and you have this wealth of ability to inspire people to trust and to cast beauty and vision in our world. That's of God, too. You're wealthy. So if we trust, acknowledge, or humble, lean on his wisdom, and and give him our wealth, this is what God promises to do. It says God will straighten your path. That's the will of God. God will refresh your existence. That's the fulfillment of God. That answers our two questions. How do we grow to understand this life? We trust the Lord. God will bless our efforts and he will overflow our blessings. It's the parable of the talents retold. If we trust and invest in his kingdom, he will give back to us this reward and that reward will be given back to him. The book of Revelation says we will all lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. No matter what we've accomplished in this earth, we will give it all to Jesus because he's worth every bit of it. You see, if we trust, he will straighten our path. If we acknowledge, he will refresh us. If we give him, uh, if we trust his wisdom and give him our wealth, he will bless our efforts and he will reward us. When I was a kid, I used to come home from school like before football practice and uh, I'd ride my bike home and I'd eat something real quick and grab my football pads or whatever and go to practice. And I always remember coming home and as the Lord would have me to do, I would watch Gilligan's Island or, or Brady Bunch and I would eat a massive bowl of cereal and I would enjoy about an hour before practices. And I always remember the public service announcement that would come on was Smokey the Bear. Some of you who grew up in the 70s will know exactly what I'm about to say. So what would Smokey tell us every afternoon? Only you can prevent forest fires. That's deep, deep. 
Why would I tell you that? Because of this. The parable of the talents teaches that only you can invest in the kingdom. No one can invest for you, and the investment of those around you is not what we're about. Each one of us is given opportunity. Some of us five, some two, some one. Everyone's given an opportunity, and everyone can choose to invest. That's the heartbeat of the story. Choose to trust God's desires for us. Second of all, seek the way of submission. What happens to us when what God has put in front of us, we're not sure we want to do? Well, ask Jesus. Because when he wanted to step away from the garden and the torture, God said, no, I'm asking you to do this. And Jesus submitted. Psalm 27.1 answers one of the core questions of being a disciple. The Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Very interesting here. The question is, is he the source of my life or am I? Because if I'm the source of my life, I'll be frightened and skittish and I'll choose to protect myself over everything else. But if not, if God is my light and salvation and he's a stronghold of my life, what can this world say about me or do to me that matters? I was thinking about this yesterday. If I'm going to stand before one man with nail-scarred hands who's going to judge my eternal destination, why do I care what anybody else thinks? Why would it matter what the world tells me I should become? If he's my strength and my stronghold, and he's, he's the defender of my life, what can this world do to me that Jesus can't fix? Submission. I remember being a kid. Now, I'm not proud of this. I've said it all three services. I want to be honest with you. This is not something I recommend, but it was, it's a truth in my life, and I share it to show you vulnerability in what God teaches When I was a kid, sometimes my parents wouldn't let me do something my friends could do. I know none of that ever happened to you. And I remember hanging out with my friends and seeing their parents be cooler than mine. And I remember having that thought, if I lived in this house, that would be awesome. If so-and-so were my dad, I, I would love that. And here's the truth. I thought about that when I was 14, 15, 16 years of age. I think completely different at 48 years of age. I am so grateful for my mom and dad. Because when they told me no, they were smarter than me. When they told me that was a bad idea, they were right every time, even when I did it. And I look back, and no disrespect to my friends' parents, but within moments of thinking that, I would be overwhelmed with this thought. I love my mom and dad. I don't care if they say no. I love them. And I want them to be my parents. You see, the reason I tell you that is I struggle with the flesh and the spirit. I struggle with this concept of submission because I love God and I know that God is good and God is kind and God is just and I know he's merciful and I love that. But sometimes I don't like what he tells me to do. Shake your head if you understand what I'm talking about. And sometimes it would be easier if God would let us define the rules so we could win more people and God's in heaven going, no, it won't win more people to me. It'll win more people to their selfishness. So submitting. The author of Hebrews tells us about Jesus, he says, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered and, was, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. How did Jesus most trust his father? By submitting to the things God asked him to do 
that Jesus did not want to do. And I don't know if you allow yourself a Jesus who didn't want to honor his father, but you can't go in the garden and hear his cries and his grief and think he was excited about this. But when God said, I want you to trust my plan and I want you to submit to it, Jesus offered those beautiful words, not my will, but yours will be done. And then lastly, you have to risk your life on God's promises. You have to trust God's desires for you, submit yourself, and lastly, risk your life on God's promises. I'm going to say something that's going to be another goofy statement, but every now and then when I'm up here preaching, I say things I wish I hadn't said. And I go back to the green room going, oh my gosh, that's not going on the tape. And then there are other times, every now and then an idea comes up to me and it falls out of my face and I go, that was pretty good. About three or four weeks ago, I started saying something on stage that's never been in my notes. And it was a confession that when I have the greatest doubts, I sometimes realize I'm betting my life on this. And I don't say that to be like some superhero because I'm just one of you. you. Have you felt that pressure? I'm betting my life. I'm betting my children. I'm betting my marriage. I'm betting my finances. I'm betting everything on this Jesus. And by faith, I'm risking it all. Because I'm either going to die the biggest fool or the most blessed man ever. And I can't control either side of that. Except what faith delivers. So when I tell you you have to risk your life on God's promises, Scott Boudreau gave me a great line between first and second service. He goes, Jesus did. It's a better sermon than I wrote. And isn't that the truth? For God to ask me to risk my life, all I have to do is look at the author and perfecter of my faith, Jesus Christ, who risked everything on the cross because he knew his God was faithful and he knew that his God's plan would work. The Old Testament even talks about the man who's self-reliant and the man who's God-reliant. An example of it is in Jeremiah 17. This is what he says about the person who's living by their own opportunities and not investing in the kingdom of God. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, for whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Those who refuse and bury the opportunities of God will never find the fulfillment of the will of God in their life. But verses 7 and 8, he talks about the God-reliant man. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes. But its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. Faith in God's promises. When I look at scripture, and I've had an opportunity this summer to teach at several high school events, and the best way to illustrate this is to show them that the Old Testament is connected right to the promises of Jesus. And one of the things that I've noticed in just doing some character reviews Everyone who we count to have great faith had to pass the test of trust by risking everything. Noah had to trust in God, not in his understanding of the forecast. Abraham had to trust in God, not his feelings for his son. Moses had to trust in God, not in the clarity or timetable that God didn't give him. David had to trust in God, not in power. Gideon had to trust in God, not in weapons. Mary had to trust in God, not in her reputation or comfort. So what I need to say to all of us, as a pastor of this church, one of the ministers here, I need to say it to you, because if I don't, I'm held responsible for it. 
If you think following Jesus won't cause you risks, you're not following Jesus. The parable of talent is about trusting in him and investing in him and he will take our work and he will multiply it and there will be great reward. Not a reward because we've earned it, a reward because he loves us because we loved him. But for many, we're we're refusing the opportunities. We're burying it. We're saying things like, all I want to do is get to heaven. And we don't understand that Jesus is trying to do two things with us. He wants to save us, and then he wants to work with us. And I don't mean work with us like use us. He wants to be our partner. He wants to lead us. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. I'm fearful that too many of us have settled with salvation and are are not understanding the fulfilling life and the opportunities that are all around us. You see, in the Bible, anybody of risk had to risk everything to know that God is everything. You have to risk everything to know that God is everything. And I think it's funny in the parable, it, it hit me about 10 minutes ago. Yeah, I do talk to myself while I'm talking to you. I think it's funny that the master is accused of being ruthless and taking what's not his. And in Jesus' parable, the master doesn't agree to that. The master looks at him and says, if you really felt I was that way, you would have made different choices. So I want to ask you, this morning, do you love him? Because if you love him, you'll serve him. Not out of obligation out of opportunity. If you don't love him and you're scared of him, you'll live in this unhealthy fear and you'll simply do what this man did in the story and he gave back to his master and he said, here's the opportunity you gave me. I didn't, I didn't ruin it. Now it's yours. And the master said, I didn't ask you to hold on to it. I asked you to put it to work in my name. So the principle today is blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. See, this morning around this room are tables with lamps. And if you've attended here at all, you know that each and every week, whatever text we're in gives us an opportunity to respond. Response today is, is a myriad of ways. There are some of us, and we saw it last hour, very emotionally. There were some people in this room who had realized that, that they had, had lived on salvation and not the fullness of of God's kingdom. And God had given them opportunity after opportunity, and they had great regret in their heart because they had passed opportunities by. They had buried them in the ground and say, I don't want to ruin this. I don't want to get involved. I just want to be a part of your kingdom. Don't give me anything to do. And there was regret and remorse. But I got good news for you. We have a God who's more concerned about today than yesterday. He's more concerned about what you're going to become, not what you've ruined. Today's the day of mercy, church. But there's a number of us who have sat here week after week, month after month, hearing the words of Jesus, and we agree. Do you agree enough to take the opportunities and invest them in his kingdom? This isn't about shame. This is about opportunity. God says, I'm going to cross your path with somebody who needs to know about me. I'm going to ask you to sacrifice your treasures for something bigger than you, something that will last long after you're gone. So I ask us today, Jesus said, there was a master who went away for a long, long time. And he asked his servants to do something for him. Take these opportunities 
and expand my kingdom. And the question in the morning is, will we? Not for our glory, but for his. Let's stand together.